listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 221. In this episode, we are going to be talking to Alyssa Battistoni about Biden's new plans for families and for jobs and what it means for the climate crisis and the care crisis. But first, the news. On May Day, immigrants and their allies marched on Washington, D.C. to demand a pathway to citizenship for three groups of workers, the Dreamers, recipients of temporary protected status, and essential workers. And there are currently legislative proposals on the table to deliver relief for all three of these groups, that is, undocumented young people brought to the U.S. as children, beneficiaries of humanitarian protections for certain countries called temporary protected status, and the largest group, the millions of frontline workers who have done grueling, often low-paid work to keep our food system, healthcare system, and other essential sectors of the economy alive and open during the pandemic. It's this latter group that faces perhaps the steepest uphill battle. They are undocumented workers who believe that their service to the country should qualify them for immigration relief. Of course, from the perspective of human rights, you should be entitled to full citizenship rights regardless of the job that you do. But in Washington, the political case to make for giving these workers papers is that they've done so much for the economy and taken on such risks during the past year that to exclude them further from society and to leave them vulnerable to deportation is morally untenable. The Citizenship for Essential Workers bill would give permanent immigration relief to roughly 5 million undocumented essential workers, as well as their undocumented family members. That could be anything from grocery workers to hospital cleaners. The legislation would provide a pathway to citizenship for roughly 7.5 million people total. According to Forward U.S., data from several major metropolitan areas in states hard hit by covid such as Texas and California, shows that more than 10% of the essential workforces there have been comprised of undocumented immigrants. Many of them have had to toil in dangerous and exploitative conditions, subject to intimidation and discrimination based on their immigration status. I spoke to Jonathan J. Green, an immigrant and activist who now works at the Margaret Casey Foundation, about why the law is so essential and why the legislation that's been proposed is still extremely limited. The Citizenship for Essential Workers Act would provide like actual status and relief to around 5 million undocumented essential workers across this country uh, who have been putting their lives on the line throughout this pandemic to make sure that our communities uh, are cared for, our communities are are fed for in this moment. Um, But even though their lives, both because of the pandemic, but because, but also because of their legal status, that they are in personal jeopardy. So this uh, legislation that was introduced by Congressman Castro and Senator Warren would provide relief for those 5 million people. So, um, I mean, the focus is on essential workers, right? So, um, you know, this, and I, I believe um, you know, it's it was introduced around the same time as the um, the legislation for farm workers, right? That's right. Also the the Dream and Promise Act. So it, it's, That's right. it's sort of like those three are kind of working in combination to sort of cover different <laughs> different parts of the undocumented population. But I think this one would cover more workers than either of those other two bills. Is that right? I think that's somewhat somewhat right, yeah, because because the numbers here includes five point two million people. Um, the the last numbers that I've seen on the Dreamer and Promise are around two to three million people. So it it depends um, on how you're 
you're calculating it. But yeah, I, I do think that this is a really important piece of legislation, particularly because um, like in, in a pandemic, there is so much that has been brought to the fore around uh, the, rea- the realities and the inequities of this system and this economy in particular. So the fact that we have around 5 million undocumented people who are putting their lives on the line and can easily be deported, right? So like what I've seen a lot of organizations talk about is the history of being seen as disposable um, as members of our community, but somehow essential uh, during a global pandemic. So I think that's why this legislation is really important. I guess there are people who are not covered by uh, any of these, right? So right. how do you respond to the groups that have kind of rejected this particular legislation because it will exclude people with criminal records and things like that? Yeah, no, I think there is a much larger conversation happening in this country around who belongs to this country, who is a guest versus who is an integral part of the community. And around that conversation, really, you know, I think it's been somewhat on some ends around immigration, but also around criminal justice. And the fact of the matter is that uh, for, like, you know, we as a country have not passed a major immigration reform bill uh, for a very long time, like the closest we got with a, a fuller immigration uh, reform bill was 20, 2013, really, when um, a, a chamber was able to pass it. But really, like we, I feel like we've been having this conversation. Well, we for sure have been uh, having a conversation about the Dream Act since the year two thousand. <laughs> so for two decades in that in that space in particular. So I think as someone who spent. Uh, a really significant part of their lives working at Undaki Block, really fighting for communities that are criminalized. You know, it is disappointing to see these criminalization bars be added to any kind of bill that the Democratic majority is pushing for in this moment. Uh, because, right, like, I think there there is like a fundamental question about who belongs in this country that these bars uh, touch on. But I do think at the same time that, you know, I, you know, it, 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 I'm happy to see that there is some movement, even if the bills are not perfect, right? Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, 5.2 million people for it. this uh, act in particular, it would be a really big difference in people's lives. So I think that's sort of like where I'm at. Yeah. Um, I think um, like National Immigration Law Center um, and like, you know, Make the Road and some other groups, they, they're, I think they they would be continuing to push the Democrats to remove um, those clauses. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, is, are you, you know, since the bills could still be amended, I mean, would you, would you say that groups should keep pushing? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I I think they should, they should think about these bills as a place to start, not a place to end. Right. Like I think historically when we talk about, uh, congressional politics, when we talk about the legislative process as it relates to immigration, usually what gets introduced is the most uh, inclusive, the broadest kind of uh, protection bill. And then during the process, it, it gets more people and more people get excluded. So it would be really great if our leaders in Congress and at the White House and all and up and down this country 
see these bills as a starting point, um, but also feel the urgency to act, the urgency to deliver for communities who put them in power in the first place. And in terms of just, you know, this idea of um, who is entitled, right, to have this, you know, this, you know, a full um, array of rights that come with citizenship. I mean, ideally, it wouldn't matter whether you're an essential worker or, you know, anybody mm, else. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But, um, but, you know, this is sort of like, that's, that's the system we work under, right? Let's this is where we are, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, even in this question, and this point that you raised around, uh, human rights conferred under citizenship, you know, like a big part of the work at Black that I was honored to be a part of um, was really questioning, right, like, what does citizenship really mean, right? Like, what does citizenship really means for, you know, Freddie Gray back in Baltimore, who was a full citizen and yet did not have his full rights honored. When we look at all of the uh victims of police violence and state violence, thinking about George Floyd and so many other people, I do think there is a large, larger conversation about how much protection does citizenship actually confer to communities of color and Black people in particular. <laughs> but at the very least, we should be able to have access to it. So I think that's where, where we're starting from. I, I guess it's just interesting um, to think about these two kind of debates converging, like you had mentioned earlier, like the sort of... Um, debate around uh, immigration and finally trying to have some form of justice for immigrants who have been excluded for so long, as well as this ongoing, this kind of overarching debate around mass incarceration and how that mm-hmm. intersects with immigration. Um, yeah. Do you, like that, that is probably not a conversation that we would have been having around immigration reform back in like 2006, right? Um, so do you feel like the, the conversation has kind of evolved, um, you know, over the past I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. Yeah. See these issues intersecting. I mean, yes, absolutely. And it has evolved evolved because we have made it evolve, right? Like when I think about when I co-founded UndocuBlack back in 2015, uh, you know, we were not able to have any of the conversations that we're having today around anti-Blackness within Latinx communities and the immigrant justice space overall. We were not talking about the criminalization of Black immigrants to the detail and the specificity that we are in this moment. And again, like UndocuBlack was just a part of a really important part and also a part of the broader Black immigrant ecosystem of organizations pushing forward that conversation. But, you know, let's be clear, it hasn't evolved because people in power uh, all of a sudden realize that we should talk about intersectionality. It's evolved because movements pushed it to push uh, the entire conversation to evolve. Um, And particularly thinking about organizations like UndocuBlack that played a really major role. That was Jonathan J. Screen of the Margaret Casey Foundation. It's been over a year of pandemic life, and yet workers all over are still struggling to get fair treatment under the so-called new normal. For a lot of university administrators, the pandemic has been an opportunity to shock doctrine their institutions, further cutting back on faculty and staff, getting rid of anything that doesn't bring in the cash, and as always, the workers who already got valued the least are facing the brunt of it. But at Rutgers University, the unions got together to fight for something better, and they've won some important gains. I spoke to Todd Wolfson, friend of the show and president of the Rutgers AAUP-AFT. I think the first thing to just flag about the coalition is just the university, which are things people know and how it's 
um, changed over the last 30 years. So Rutgers is a public university, a land-grant university, and it's important to note that like all public universities and all of higher ed, they've seen massive disinvestment at the federal and the state level over the last 30 years. And that disinvestment's important because what, what it's led to is a bunch of neoliberal managers that have taken over our universities because of the change in the economics of the university. And so over the last 30 years, we've seen what people call the fall of the faculty, a lack of faculty governance. But what we've also actually seen is the growth of an administrative class that have begun to run our universities. And that administrative class is largely made up of accountants and lawyers and human resource bureaucrats. And they have seen the disinvestment and their response to the disinvestment has been all the things we know, rising tuition costs, growing adjunctification, so more contingent and precarious labor, uh, particularly for teachers. And also magical thinking, like at Rutgers, for instance, they've had this magical thinking that somehow athletics is going to save the university's financial picture. Um, and so they've invested over the last decade, $300 million have, has been taken out of the general budget and moved into athletics as a subsidy to our athletics program over the last decade. Um, with this belief and its magical thinking that somehow that's going to change the reputational status of the university um, and also maybe change the financial status of the university. And the last thing they've obviously prioritized is, you know, this, you know, desire to grow their um, reserves, unrestricted and restricted reserves or endowment over all else, right? So same sort of logic as every other industry. So that's what our universities have been seeing over the last 20 to 30 years. And so then you get to the pandemic and you have these same neoliberal managers and you know exactly what they're going to do, which is, Two things. One, they're going to punish the workers and extract as many concessions from workers during a pandemic as possible. And in association, go after the least secure of our workers. And so that largely has been throughout history. And in this moment, riding out the crisis on the backs of low wage workers, disproportionately women and people of color. And so right. Rutgers, like every other university in this crisis, has done that. Um, and then secondarily, you know, in Naomi Klein shock doctrine style, they've taken out all of their disciplining the workforce strategies off the shelf, dusted them off, and then made made attempts to find ways to use, you can't let a good crisis go to waste, use the crisis to discipline the Rutgers workforce, all of the Rutgers workforce. From, and Rutgers professor Naomi Klein now, right? Yes, so. Rutgers <laughs> professor Naomi Klein, say. my wonderful colleague. Um, and so... They did all of that, Sarah. They did all of those things. And yeah. so we knew they were going to do that well before because we knew who they were. And so there was always a coalition of Rutgers unions, but we hadn't really worked that closely together. And it, the primary focus had been things like, can we get aligned on healthcare? Um, and so with the pandemic, we said to ourselves, we really need this coalition and we need to build up all all of the workers and align ourselves in response to what we know management would do. And so the coalition of Rutgers unions is 19 plus unions. It's um, 20,000 workers. There's 30,000 workers overall at Rutgers and 70,000 students. So it's a, it's a complex organism of a hundred thousand people, but 20,000 of those workers are union. And that is every type of job, right? We're talking about 
tech workers. We're talking about, yes, faculty, tenure track and non-tenure track, adjunct faculty, grad workers, uh, doctors, nurses, techs in our hospital uh, infrastructure. But then we're also talking about dining facilities, workers, administrative staff, groundskeepers, all sorts of maintenance workers, um, um, fire, um, et cetera. So it's a massive uh, grouping of workers. And so that's what the Coalition of Workers Unions is. And I guess I would say that when we came together, we knew that what the they would try to do, and I mentioned this before, was to start um, saving money by laying people off. And that's precisely what they did. But before they did that, we stepped into the breach and said, no, here is a different way to approach the pandemic. We called it a people-centered approach. And basically what we called on was, uh, let's center the most vulnerable and not hurt them. So no layoffs during a pandemic. Don't strip people of their health care. Um, um, don't lay off our adjunct faculty who are very precarious. And let's look after our most precarious, uh, precarious grad workers who this uh, pandemic can lead to kind of what we've called invisible layoffs. And in exchange for doing that, we'll give you what we call what's a what is a work share program where we furlough, but the federal government through the CARES Act at the time pays the difference and everyone's kept whole. Right. So that was our, our first offer. And, and it's been a travail from there. Right. Yeah. So that was a year ago that all of this started to come together. And it's been quite a lot of fighting that you all have been through since then. Fighting is the word. Um, <laughs> the administration denied our offer. They bargained us to a standstill. They were advised by Jackson Lewis, which is a uh, anti-union uh, law firm. And even though we were offering them $150 million in savings, which is equivalent to what they thought at the time was going to be the shortfall, they still said no because they were scared of the coalition that was building and it was too much of a pain in their butt. So instead of taking our offer, they laid off a thousand people, almost all low wage workers, uh, largely dining and and dorm um, and largely disproportionately women and people of color. And all of those people lost health care in the middle of a health crisis. And we're talking about a public university here that did this. Um, and, but that's not the only thing they did. They laid off about 400 adjuncts. Um, and our adjunct faculty uh, make, you know, the, I, the layoff of 400 adjunct faculty saved them $4.5 million, which is about what they pay in the annual, uh, their salary for the head football coach. So we like to call that maximum paying for minimum gain. So that's what they did. And then they stole our raises. And so after they did that, we filed a grievance. We took them to binding arbitration. But what we really did was built up a series of work actions among all of the workers, particularly in the libraries, but across the university and put maximum pressure on them. And so then you fast forward to December and the Relief Act that was passed around Christmas. And we they they were feeling a lot of pressure from us. And we turned around to them and said, hey, Here's another chance. We have this new federal unemployment, this time at $300 um, a week, and we can use that unemployment to ha make a new work share deal. And so they got back down to the table. This is a new president that had been taken office since then, Jonathan Holloway. And we got back to the table and we negotiated again. And this time we were able 
to secure a deal. And what that deal is basically is staff workers that were a part of the uh, bargaining have layoff protections through January of 2022. They have a reappointment process for all the adjuncts that were laid off and a grad extension program for, for our, our doctoral students who are coming off funding. They can apply and if they've had a been impacted by the pandemic, they get a one-year funded extension for their studies. And for a public university, that's the first of its kind in the country. And we got our raises back on the schedule. They've been deferred, but we get them back. They wanted to cancel them. And in exchange for that, we we, we do this work share program. So faculty uh, work share, and they cut back 10% of their time, and staff cut back at 20% of their time. And the reason there's a difference is because the idea is we want to keep as many people in this program whole. And so anybody making under $200,000 a year who does this furlough program with the federal unemployment and the state unemployment is kept whole. And so faculty who are making a little bit more can only be kept whole if they furlough at 10% of their time and staff at 20%. So that was the big give. That was our big concession and an exchange we got uh, our staff um, their job protections, we got our adjuncts rehired, and we get our grads one year extension, and we get our raises back. So, yeah, so tell us, our listeners are probably wondering, what are some lessons for other universities, and not just universities, but other workplaces um, from what y'all have done here? I think the biggest lesson is like a return to industrial organizing, right? That we couldn't, we would have lost or we wouldn't have built the kind of power we needed to build if the faculty went into their corner, the administrative staff were in their corner, the grad workers were in their corner, the adjunct faculty that were in their corner, the and the doctors and nurses were in their corner. They would have been able to take us each apart and do what they will with us without us building a much bigger front of power. And so at one level, it, it isn't traditional industrial organizing because we're, we were a bunch of different unions, but we bargained together here. We bargained doctors and nurses and counselors and administrative staff and faculty and grad workers bargained with the administration with one voice. And that's new. And I think that's important. The other thing I'll say, and this is particular to higher ed, is that we forced and pressed our faculty, faculty who are the most privileged to, to one, sacrifice for other workers so solidarity was central to our vision and mission here, that the most secure workers must step into the breach to protect the other workers who are less secure. And so faculty furloughing in order to save the jobs of staff was a centerpiece of this campaign. And so to me, that that well, at one level, obviously, it's solidarity, but that that's um, sort of vague and abstract. At, at a more meaningful level, you know, I think what it showed us was that we have to like, particularly faculty who are the most privileged, have to put away this kind of belief that we're special and different. We're not. We're just workers like everyone else. And if we stand together collectively, we're all going to be in much more of a better position. Yeah. And I mean, right now, grad students are on strike at NYU as we record this. Um, there have been grad worker strikes around the country and actions and organizing. And so it's it's good to see professors willing to say, like, yeah, we'll take a hit for our grad students and our adjuncts and our staff and everybody who doesn't make as much money as we do. 
Absolutely. And and one one of the things I can say about why we were able to do this is because we're one of the rare faculty worker unions with grad workers. So we're faculty and grads in one union. Mm-hmm. And my faculty leadership is wonderful, but our grad workers are amazing and vibrant and uh, militant, and they push us, push me every day to fight for them and to put forward and center the needs of the most vulnerable. And so I think for for Rutgers, we are we are lucky that we're in one unit and in one union, and it's enabled us to kind of try to uh, find a different way forward through the pandemic that is precisely what you're saying, putting ourselves on the line for, in this case, the grad workers. So it's a good bellwether of a change of consciousness. Excellent. So how can our listeners find out more about this and keep up with you and the union? Yeah, you can you can go to our website, RutgersAUPAFT.org. And, we, you know, we really, I, I mean, I think the thing on our mind is to really help reinvigorate higher ed organizing. Um, and so we really hope to work with a bunch of higher ed unions to write, to build a new imagination of what's to come. And the last thing I'll say here is that it's one thing for us to fight to bargain over our contracts together, but we also have to fight over the future of public universities, right? And so that means what, what this moment taught me is that the people who run our universities they do not run it in the interest of the 70,000 students at Rutgers or the 30,000 workers at Rutgers or the millions of lives they touch across the state. The only people that can run our universities are the faculty, the students, and the staff that work and, and hold our universities together. And so what we're imagining as we move forward is how do we change governance at this institution? Governance should not be run by a, a set of board of governors who have no relationship to higher education. It should be run by those of us who make the university work and who go to the university on a daily basis. That was Todd Wolfson, Associate Professor of Journalism and Media Studies and co-director of the Mike Center, and also, of course, president of the Rutgers AAUP AFT. For a long time, the federal government has been one of the country's biggest low-wage employers. How's that? Well, many federal contract workers, the people who are employed by contractors or vendors who do business with the feds, have been earning poverty wages. You see, they're basically outsourced workers. The federal government contracts with outside companies through the procurement system, and they do stuff like staff concession stands at federal parks or serve as custodians in federal buildings. And the contractors are actually incentivized to pay them as little as possible in the competitive bidding process in order to maximize their profits and keep the contracts as cheap as possible. The Biden administration has just started to shift the wage structure for federal contractors with an executive order mandating that federal contractors pay a minimum wage of $15 per hour. According to the Economic Policy Institute, quote, up to 390,000 low-wage federal contractors will see a raise under this policy, with the average annual pay increase for affected year-round workers being up to $3,100. Roughly half of workers who would see a raise will be women, and roughly half will be Black or Hispanic workers, unquote. As we have reported before, federal contractors have been allowed to scrimp on workers' wages because of, basically, political inertia. The Obama administration did issue a similar executive order back in 2013, raising contract workers' wages to a minimum of $10.10 per hour. That affected about 180,000 workers. Today, the minimum hourly wage for federal contract workers remains stagnant at $10.95 per hour. 
For tipped workers, the minimum wage is even lower, $7.65 per hour, thanks to an even more unjust law governing tipped workers' wages. This latest executive order brings low-wage federal contract workers more in line with the trends that have been happening around the country since 2013, with the Fight for 15 leading to a flurry of state and local-level initiatives granting $15 per hour minimum wages to both public and private sector workers. The order also helps close the racial wage gap within the federal workforce. Although $15 an hour is still considered pretty low in many parts of the country, the Economic Policy Institute noted that for the federal contract workers who are unionized, a higher base wage would significantly boost their bargaining power, giving them leverage to negotiate for better wages and working conditions beyond what they need to barely survive. And to further improve conditions for federal contract workers, the Economic Policy Institute recommends that the government go further by reforming the competitive bidding system for contracts so that companies are not driven to set wages as low as possible, and also to forbid contractors from undermining workers' rights by forcing them to sign forced arbitration agreements. These legal handcuffs basically limit workers' access to justice if workplace conflicts or abuses arise. But the $15 wage floor does help the federal government raise standards for a change rather than lagging behind the rest of the country. The wave of journalism organizing over recent years has been one of the high points for an embattled labor movement. And with it has come an increase in militancy for what are often otherwise kind of staid white collar unions. It's hard, after all, to challenge your dream job when you know it's probably true that your boss could replace you tomorrow with a hundred other eager, qualified applicants. Nevertheless, the workers at the New Yorker Union, Pitchfork Union, and Ars Technica Union, all of which are run by Condé Nast, have voted 98% to authorize a strike, which could come very soon. As part of Strike Prep Week, the union invited me to join a panel with New Yorker and Pitchfork workers this week to talk about my book and what it means to strike at a job that is very much a labor of love. We discussed the way long hours predominate, that the biggest challenge in bargaining has been the demand for a defined workday, the way social media work is gendered and devalued so that writers who take social media jobs, thinking it'll be a way to get a foot in the door, wind up scrambling. What it means when you literally have the job you always wanted, and what kind of militancy it sparks when that job, in fact, doesn't pay the bills. The difference between being theoretically pro-union and getting together to talk with your colleagues and realizing how common your struggles really are. And maybe most importantly, given the theme of this episode, how organizing the union is a project of care for your coworkers. When the boss says the workplace is a family, that isn't what they mean. But the union is nevertheless a way of caring. The workers held an action on May Day last weekend. I was in Massachusetts with the striking nurses that day. But still, from the pictures that I saw, my favorite sign is, you can't eat prestige. It is really true. And as I said on that call this week, The New Yorker is both the epitome of a prestige publication and a place that actually pays journalists to do real reporting. And so it's worth fighting for decent conditions, even at a magazine that winds up being a luxury product. Journalism shouldn't be a luxury product, after all. And one way to make sure it isn't is to fight for better conditions and living incomes for its workers so that it can be available to all to consume and, most importantly, to produce.
This week, I stopped in Massachusetts to visit the ongoing strike at St. Vincent Hospital that you heard about on last episode from Nurse Marie Ritaco. The nurses are on their 60th strike day as I record this, and on the day this podcast drops, it looks likely that they'll be on day 61. This might be, from a review of the data, the longest nursing strike in a few decades in the country, not just in Massachusetts. Of course, it's hard to get data on that because the BLS doesn't capture data for strikes of under a thousand workers, meaning this historic strike of 800 nurses for two months doesn't even exist in their statistics. But that's just one way that our political system has made care work invisible. And this week, we're talking about care work, about Joe Biden's American Families Plan and American Jobs Plan and where care fits in both of them, about caring work as infrastructure and as a green job, about how the gender binary shapes how we think about caring work and other green work, which workplaces we think matter. With our friend, Alyssa Battistoni, who is an environmental fellow at the Harvard Center for the Environment, the co-author of A Planet to Win from Verso Books with our other friends, Theoria Frankos, Daniel Aldana-Cohen, and Kate Aronoff, former Descent podcasters. And we will, of course, link to her articles on the subject at the Descent website. So Joe Biden has announced his American Families Plan. And so to start off with, I just love your sort of first impressions on the size and scope of this thing. I mean, my initial thoughts are, are just that it, it is uh, a really major um, investment. It's a it's a big shift in American policy around care, which has um, there hasn't been a whole lot of American policy around care, um, and uh, it's you know I think the it really does seem to signal um, a recognition that um, the current model. Um, of care, which is very um, privatized, basically just leaves it up to um, individual um, people and families to deal with care. And that means mostly um, either women working unpaid um, or um, the huge and growing paid care workforce, which um, is really, uh, as, as people probably know, um, comprised primarily of um, women of color who are really severely underpaid, um, that that's really not working um, for, for anyone, either for people who need care um, or for people who are caring. So I think it's really, it is very striking. Um, and there are a lot of exciting pieces to it. Yeah. So one of the things, of course, is that like, it's already sort of been contrasted with the quote unquote jobs plan, right? Um, so I'm wondering if, if like you think, and I, I might be biased on this because I want to abolish the family, that calling it the family's plan sort of sets us off on a bad foot. We get like Joe Manchin and company saying that care isn't as important as quote unquote infrastructure. Yeah, well, that is, uh, I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think the the framing of the jobs plan and the family's plan is <laughs> um, very telling, um, yeah. certainly, and and suggests, I mean, not only that care is not really a job, um, but that care is, is all sort of only um, a, a question of, or really only a matter for the family, or it's important <laughs> um, as a way of shoring up the family um, or something like that. So I think that uh, I certainly do not <laughs> love the framing. Um, and I think that also, um, you know, has, as, as you sort of suggest, has, uh, has 
contributed to, I mean, it's funny because I think on the one hand, it's contributed to this kind of debate around whether care is really infrastructure and so on. Um, at the same time, when they put, you know, they have a, a $400 um, billion for care in the um, jobs plan specifically. Um, and that that was also, um, you know, got a lot of flack for not really being infrastructure and so on. So in some ways, the framing is um, as sort of distasteful as I find it, um, I think is um, probably not was driving the a lot of the sort of pushback around whether care really counts. Um, but it does point to um, certainly the the sort of what I think is one of the um, the things we should be concerned about and be interrogating more, I guess, about um, care spending and, and sort of care policy and what exactly um, it, what we want out of it, what we expect it to do. And the framing, I think, does speak to that, because I think even in the debate over care as infrastructure, there's really the question, well, you know, the question was, well, what is infrastructure? Um, some people saying infrastructure is just, uh, you know, like, you're kind of, big building stuff projects with like guys and hard hats building like a concrete thing somewhere like very physical object thing um and then the the, the kind of pushback being well no care or infrastructure is about the the foundations of the economy or things that you need for other kinds of stuff and other kinds of work in particular to happen. Um, and I do think that's in general right in that infrastructure, it seems to me, is more a, like social relation than a thing. Um, but I also, um, you know, worry that then we are starting to frame um, infrastructure as only things that are good for the rest of the economy. We only need care if it'll get um, people to work more and work better um, rather than actually we need care because everyone um, needs and deserves care at different stages in their life <laughs> um, to live, to live a good life, to live a fulfilling life. And people need that care and the people who are giving that care um, need to be, um, you know, paid well, treated well, recognized, supported, a lot of things they aren't. And that that is actually that infrastructure can be a foundation for people's lives rather than um, just for like increasing economic activity and work and all these things. So uh, the American Families Plan, let's which <laughs> sounds like a mobile phone plan or something. The <laughs> plan. Um, so one of the major features is that it promises to boost child care funding um, to subsidize low and middle income families to pay um, no more than 7% of their annual income um, to fund, you know, early childhood education, child care um, up to the age of five. So, um, I mean, that's, uh, that's something that people have been calling for for a while, even under the Trump administration. Um, this proposal is somewhat notable because um, it actually stipulates that child care workers should be paid at least $15 an hour um, and kind of acknowledges this historical historic chronic underpayment of childcare workers. Um, though this has been really, you know, a, a perennial debate that comes up, you know, like about how to fund childcare and how to make childcare sustainable. Um, and various lawmakers have tried and failed to tackle it over the years. So do you have any ideas about why this country is stuck with a childcare system that is extremely expensive for parents and yet seems to have no money for paying workers a living wage? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm not an expert in, I guess, childcare policy per se. So I, I probably don't have um, 
the most detailed answer here. Um, but I think in part it is the, um, the, the fact that so much of it is basically like operating privately with very little um, support. Uh, you know, there's very little subsidies. There's, there's not sort of a very, um, uh, it is just kind of a free for all in a lot of ways. Um, and that means that you have people who, I mean, it is just, you know, it's a very labor intensive sector. So it's obviously, um, you're paying for a lot of labor costs. You need somebody to be looking after your kid, you know, whenever you're not. So there's, um, there's just a lot of labor time involved. Um, and that means that you end up having, um, either, uh, you know, that you can have, um, wages be very low and still somebody, you know, you're still paying a lot for the, the, the sort of total labor time. Um, and there is, there kind of, can be a kind of um, that can set up a tension between the people who are paying for care and the people who are um, uh, caring, uh, especially when it's not organized through, you know, some kind of public program or, or subsidy or um, support, because it's just, it's just directly <laughs> from, um, you know, any, any rise in the wage of um, that childcare worker is um, coming straight out of the pocket of the person who's paying for care. And if that person is barely making $15 an hour, you know, it's, it's hard to see how that is, um, is that going to be, that's going to be sustainable for people. Um, and it is really am amazing how low those wages are. I mean, I'm not sure what exactly the figures in childcare are, but, um, in 2018, in adult home care, um, 76% of workers were earning less than $15 per hour. So, um, I think that's really, important. Uh, but, but yeah, that is one of the, I think just the real challenges of, of care as a sector in general, whether it's childcare or elder care or, um, other kinds of health care that are about just spending time <laughs> with people because they are just, um, yeah, time intensive, labor intensive. Um, and that, that's this dichotomy. And the fact that, you know, it's the more, the more sort of lower down in the labor chain you get, um, there it's the work tends to be done by women, you know, immigrants, people of color. So um, that's kind of kind of reflects the general kind of structural racism of the of the entire care sector that way too. I mean, even even childcare workers earn way less than say you know primary school teachers. So um, there's like a disparity in that sense as well. But um, bouncing off what you noted about home care workers, um, home care workers actually included in the American Jobs Plan that Biden rolled out a little bit before he rolled out his family's plan. Um, and uh, you know, there, he basically pointed out that um, uh, this is a sector of care work that has been overlooked um, and that uh, it should be considered broadly part of the infrastructure. And so there is an initiative there to boost wages as well. But um, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, within the home care sector, um, it seems to often be lumped in with domestic work in terms of the nature of the work, the types of wages that people get and who does it, um, even though it really is an extension of our healthcare infrastructure. Um, so do you have any thoughts on, um, you know, how these different sectors kind of get mixed and uh, sort of arbitrarily divided, uh, depending on who is doing the labor? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great observation. And I think it is, um, that's absolutely right, uh, that it's sort of, if you're working in the home, you become 
uh, a domestic worker in in general, or that that kind of becomes the category rather than what kind of um, work is being done. And so, domestic workers, um, you know, you would usually think of people who are maybe doing cleaning work or um, other kinds of like uh, you know like waged housework, basically, um, and uh, and then home care workers. I mean, the thing is, there is there is an interesting kind of um, on the one hand, they are different kinds of work, and the other time, the other hand, there is actually um, more kind of fluidity and overlap. Because if you're a home care worker, you might be doing some, um, you know, providing health services or helping people with medication, um, and uh, you know, helping them, you know, um, go to the bathroom or uh, do other things that they can't do on their own that are kind of about like sustaining <laughs> their bodily functions. Um, but you might also be helping them like cook or clean up a pile of. Um, laundry that they can't really get to because of um, disability or illness or or whatever you're there to be helping them with, um, and so there are there is a way that I think the tasks themselves can end up blurring for um, home care workers, um, and into the so they are kind of they're kind of like half they're, or they're doing they're doing some um, you know care in a kind of um, healthcare sense and they're doing some more general. Um, uh, various things around the home. And um, that, you know, I think is also, um, I think it's it's one of the areas that also makes those workers kind of, um, they just have this like very expansive job description, right? So uh, they could end up doing um, a lot of different things. Like it's not a very well-defined um, set of responsibilities and tasks. And I think that it's, it's an interesting place where we see the kind of just, um, where we're having actually probably more um, clearly defined expectations and responsibilities might be helpful for some of those workers. Um, but I do think in general that those are um, kinds of work that, um, you know, as, uh, as Sarah's uh, new book, uh, which is really great, writes about, um, are just not really seen as real work. Like if you're helping like tidy someone's house um, <laughs> because they, you know, can't do it themselves, that's not really like work. That's not a real job. Um, you know, I think all these things are seen as, um, not uh, as as not having the same like status of work as, as other kinds, and um, that is also reflected in how they're paid in a lot of ways. So, um, so the the more that that um, where we see those workers that seem to have to just be doing <laughs> to basically just be like housewives or like moms or whatever who are mm -hmm. doing a lot of the stuff that are associated with women in the home they're paid <laughs> badly, um, often treated badly. Um, and so there's, I think that's part of why we see that interesting, um, overlap. Yeah. I mean, um, under federal law, home care, home health aides were not even considered actual. I mean, they were, they were set apart even from other domestic workers because they were considered companions, basically yeah. they were considered sort of like the hired friends of senior citizens and people with disabilities. So, um, totally. And it is also hard sometimes, so, you know, it's hard for them to organize often because, um, people are working in individual homes. Like there's not like the one centralized workplace. Um, you might be working usually in a lot of different homes. Um, it's not kind of like you all go to the factory together and like talk about the union on your lunch break and, you know, not to, not to kind of like stereotype, um, a more industrial workplace, but it is, you know, that makes it also more difficult to demand things like her. We just, so a lot of times that ends up going through, um, or protections for those workers does end up going through the state and through new regulations and, um, standards for wages and for, um, 
for like the you know what the job description is and all of that so it is um you know i think that's it's notable that we're finally seeing some of that on um, a federal level uh because it is um that kind of that kind of like state standard setting is has been historically important for um these kinds of work yeah, yeah. And to be clear, I think, uh, you know, um, the Obama administration actually pushed through a rule change that would have, uh, you know, fully acknowledged them as as workers, you know, rather than just companion caregivers. But um, that was held up in court uh, for many years because the industry, uh, in its zeal to acknowledge that the people who were working for that industry were not actual workers, filed like many, many lawsuits <laughs> to fight it in court. So um, it is interesting to see how, you know, they're... Um, how different definitions of work end up getting litigated. Um, but moving on to this other component of um, the the jobs plan that Biden rolled out, which dovetails with stuff you've written, um, Biden has tried to push this idea that um, the climate crisis is really just synonymous with job creation. Um, and the jobs plan emphasizes building jobs in green energy and um, things like strengthening public transportation and retrofitting buildings. Um, but of course, this isn't the first time that we've um, had an administration that has kind of touted the promise of green jobs. Can you talk about um, green jobs as kind of a, a political prospect? And, um, you know, over the past, I guess, um, 12 years, we've been sort of hearing about the promise of green jobs. Do you feel like that promise has materialized or um, has it been, uh, I guess, distorted in some ways? Like, how, how would you, how do you think it's fared over the last decade or so? Yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting <laughs> uh, trajectory. I mean, yes, green jobs have definitely, I think, become a, a really central piece of how people talk about climate and, I guess, environmental stuff in general, although mostly people just talk about climate. And this this comes out of um, the recognition that, um, you know, taking action on climate was going to put some people out of work, most notably in extractive industries, but probably also in related industries. And that, you know, there needs to be a, um, a way to um, transition those people into other kinds of work and the kind of just transition framework developed by uh, labor and environmental groups. Um, there's also kind of just a, a general attempt to overcome the the, the more general um, idea that jobs and environment are counterposed. And so that has given us this idea of the green job that will like, um, is a nebulous concept, I would say, <laughs> but that, and um, I think is usually associated with a kind of um, basically like uh, green infrastructure and an industrial production um, which might be a little bit of an oxymoron, but um, but that you have, um, you know, you're going to have people building, you know, wind and solar installations, building electric vehicles, um, this kind of like uh, remaking. I think it's mostly when people think about green jobs, they mostly think about rebuilding energy infrastructure um, and to some degree green tech. Um, you know, I think what is striking about, um, I mean, Biden in some ways is just the culmination of that, um, that rhetoric over, over uh, many years, which I think has often come from, um, you know, again, people who are, are trying to like make a, 
a case for um, for climate policy that's not just like a carbon tax or something that's kind of a um, that's that's a more like robust industrial policy type approach um, and that's trying to you know sell people on on climate basically as something that won't <laughs> destroy their lives but might like help them in some way um, and so Biden represents a culmination. I definitely think when Biden talks about jobs, he is invoking that very like infrastructure industrial model um of you know again the kind of like guy in a hard hat building a like you know a thing <laughs> um installing the solar panel etc um but what's actually pretty striking is that even though he talks about jobs 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 all the time with climate like his infrastructure plan is really underwhelming <laughs> on the climate spending and i think in some ways um what is is has been striking to me is that um, you know I've tried to argue that we should think about things like care work as a form of green job that we should have an expanded view of green jobs um, in terms of thinking about um, the kinds of work we need to um, you know for people to have good lives that are low carbon that are not resource intensive and that things like care and education are a really important part of um, what that low carbon good life is um, and that you know like helping somebody, you know, as we're talking about home care workers, right? Like helping somebody um, get through the day with the things that they need um, is not in itself like a resource intensive activity, right? Um, but it can really improve people's quality of life and their lives. So um, that, so I think that that's, you know, I've been trying to argue with this expanded view of green jobs, but what's sort of funny to me is that in the Biden plan, there actually is a lot more money for care than for some of the kind of traditional green infrastructure spending. And I'm actually, I'm concerned about that, not because there should be less money for care, obviously, um, but because I think Biden is sort of um, talking a big game on climate, but hasn't really been putting the money um, where his, his mouth is, I guess. Um, and a lot of the infrastructure spending um, is not, even though he's, he's sort of pitching the, the big infrastructure bill as like the climate bill um, or like as a very climate oriented bill, it's, uh, it's not spending as much on um, climate type investments as I think it should. And most of what it is, is just kind of around um, electric vehicle infrastructure, um, not most, but more than um, certainly, I think, disproportionate compared to things like public transit um, and other kinds of um, investments that I would like to see. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of been an interesting uh, uh like, um, th it's been interesting for me to see that because I was always expecting that Biden would just kind of like go all in on the, um, yeah, on the, the kind of like, like whatever people's traditional view of infrastructure spending, <laughs> um, around green stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've written a lot about this sort of nostalgic idea of what green jobs are that end up being sort of boy jobs for boys. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, I think one of the things that that you've written about really well, and the, this question about sort of what are green jobs, right, is this this gender binary around work, right? And it's also, as you've noted, like a racialized binary where men of color are more likely to be in care jobs than white men. Um, and so it is th this divide between the jobs plan and the families plan sort of reiterates that. But it is, as you said, interesting that there's actually more money for care um, so I guess what I'm actually asking here rather than rambling is like, how do we sort of get beyond these nostalgic ideas of who does what job 
for a future of work that does need to revolve much more around care? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it is really striking the kind of um, divide between like the the kind of traditional um, or the way that I think people often think about green jobs as kind of like industrial infrastructure, um, very male dominated jobs and also extractive industry jobs like men are 87.5% um, of extractive industry workers. Um, so like that is a very, it's a very, the kind of idea. So the, um, I think the, the people who are, um, you know, would be sort of losing work to climate action if we shut down the fossil fuel industry, which we obviously should do <laughs> immediately, um, would be mostly men. And so um, there's, I think, an idea that we need to have like male jobs for those men who are losing work, um, as opposed to um, the very um, female dominated education and care sectors. Um, and, you know, I think that a huge amount of that is really, I think, around the um, the kinds of pay um, and like compensation and treatment of that work. Some of it is recognition and kind of cultural stereotyping and things like that. But I think if those jobs, I think if like care jobs um, and education jobs and these kinds of like um, non-traditional green job or like um, the the kind of more expansive view of um, of green job were were better jobs, I think you would see more men doing them. Um, and I think that's, you know, reflects in a lot of ways, um, the, uh, the kinds of like, just the way that in our, um, that the gendered and racial hierarchies of American life, like, um, people who have more, uh, social power have these better paying jobs and, and people who have less get jobs that are paid less and, and tend to, um, have fewer benefits and, and are less recognized and all of these things. So, um, it's obviously, um, you know, and we can see the kind of, um, you know, as you mentioned, the, uh, men of color are much more likely to do, um, care work. That's not kind of like being a doctor, Black men are three more times more likely to have like a um, a, a sort of care job um, and the kind of like health aid nurse, I guess like um, area of of care work um, than white men are. So there's you know it's as as with everything, it's always both gendered and racialized. Um, but I really think you know if if those that work were better, it would be <laughs> appealing to, to many people. The problem is that like, obviously there's something really perverse about that to be like, well, we should pay these jobs more and then men will do them. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I'm, so, I'm sort of sometimes like, I don't know totally what to do about that. Um, so I think it's, it's like kind of fucked up. <laughs> um, I mean, not kind of fucked up. I think it is fucked up. Um, that, that is, that is kind of the, um, the dynamic we have. And in some ways it's like, well, um, the, you know, the problem isn't, I mean, I think we need, I think, I think everyone should do every kind of work, um, that they want to do or, um, or, and also do less work. <laughs> um, and that, you know, so I don't, I don't want to like reinforce, um, a gendered division of labor, but I do think that that's, that's, um, an important piece of it. Um, and it's interesting because I think there actually is like a, a real transition from extractive industries um, and like kind of the industrial um, sectors associated with them to um, the care sector. But the, you know, um, the shift right now is um, often a downgrade in pay. So um, 
you know, the New York Times had this interesting story a couple of years ago about um, Letcher County, Kentucky, um, which was historically a big coal mining area. Um, and as coal mining jobs have disappeared, um, uh, not not like primarily because of climate action um, so much as, um, well, partly because of, of some like climate regulations, um, but also um, through automation and um, coal becoming um, less cost efficient. Uh, but in any case, coal mining jobs have disappeared um, and increasingly women working in healthcare are like the family breadwinners, um, but those jobs don't pay as well. So household incomes have gone down. So people like perceive that to be rightly um, a, a loss in um, certainly perceive a, a loss in income and that these jobs are less good jobs um, because they aren't, um, you know, they're not supporting uh, the household in the way that the old coal mining job was. So I think that then there's this association that all of these um, care, these care jobs are, are bad, um, that even though they're actually, <laughs> um, there is, uh, you know, before you had a kind of single breadwinner model where like a man was working in a coal mine and now there's like a single breadwinner model where a woman is working in healthcare. Um, but it, it seems like a really different, um, it seems like a loss. Um, and I think that's a real problem, um, even though I also don't think that we should have a single breadwinner model as like the model of how you survive um, in this country in general. Back to your point, Sarah, about the kind of um, reinforcement of like the family as as the means to um, access either care or income or any of these things that people need. So, um, so yeah, um, I guess the last thing is obviously like um, that I think if people... Um, and this I, this just goes to the point around the um, these jobs being seen as and treated as good jobs is is like being able to unionize and um, and for workers themselves to be able to actually demand better uh, recognition and compensation is really crucial. Um, and I think the um, you know as I mentioned, although it, it can be hard to unionize. Um, like home healthcare, um, we are seeing very exciting unionization. Um, efforts and um, like a very um, exciting labor movement amongst care workers, education workers. And I think that's really important because it, it, it is a reminder that it's not like this isn't an inherent thing to these jobs. There is um, uh, it's these jobs can become better jobs and they can be better jobs when workers um, are able to demand that they be better jobs. Yeah. Seems like the problem is more with them, um, you know, perceptions of gender roles and social inequality in the structure of the family instead of anything inherently bad about any specific kind of work. <laughs> so, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and as, as, um, you know, Sarah has written really well, like there, these older jobs were not, it's not like industrial jobs were like amazing <laughs> jobs. Like it's not like they were jobs that people love to do or like that they're, um, you know, that there's something in them that's like makes this like a good job. It's like, well, if they're unionized, they pay well, they have benefits, like people will do them because they need those things. Um, but it's not like this is like an inherently amazing <laughs> kind of work that we should all just want to go back to. This is where, since you've nicely plugged my book, um, I will <laughs> plug Gabe Winant's wonderful book, The Next Shift, um, which covers the shift from industrial work to healthcare work in Pittsburgh really well. Yeah, absolutely. It's like another, I mean, Gabe's book is amazing. And it's another really good um, example of the kind of um, the little story just told about the Kentucky shift um, in terms of the 
the that um, you know industrial or extractive industry to to care, um, and the and the challenges of that. That's not taking those as that as a necessary decline um, in in what work is and means. Yeah, um, just to zoom out a little bit on the issue of, of green jobs and the and what job growth actually means. Um, do you think there's something inherently dangerous in discussing what we should do about the climate crisis in terms of job growth? <laughs> like, like is um, you know, there's there's this ongoing debate about um, people's ambivalence around embracing green capitalism as, as such, you know, um, is, is there something problematic about why our discussions on climate change in this country always seem to go back to, well, how many jobs can we create from this crisis? Um, is there a way that we can tackle um, the climate crisis, um, you know, without dismantling the structures of capitalism that have driven us into ecological crisis in the first place? Amazing question. I love it. Um, I, I mean, I think the short answer is in the, in the long run, no, I I absolutely think that we have to, um, to dismantle capitalism to address the climate crisis. And the short term, the answer has to be, we have to figure out some ways to um, at least get emissions down before we um, dismantle capitalism, I think, um, just because we have to be doing that immediately. Um, you know, so I think, and we have to do as much as we can within capitalism while we also try to move beyond it. Um, but I do think, I mean, I completely agree with, um, you know, or, or I, I think it's, I do think it's dangerous to frame everything in terms of job growth and it is, um, really, um, you know, another thing that I think is really perverse and, um, and, you know, um, just, it's terrible that we have to, that every single thing we do has to kind of go through the, well, what will it do to jobs or what, um, will this kill jobs or create jobs? And and that's the only metric for any policy. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think we should be able to make, um, we should be able to, to think about what we need to do. That's not, um, not always going through the job framing. Um, that's that I also think that the, you know, the real anxiety around job loss, um, and, uh, particularly environmental sort of, um, environmentally, uh, I guess, driven job loss is real. I think it's the anxiety is real. (laughs) Sometimes the, um, the reality of like that as the, um, that environmental regulations, for example, are killing jobs, I think is, is a, um, it's something that is, I think, drastically overstated. Uh, and you see, you know, for example, around all the pipeline fights um, around building like the Keystone Pipeline or the Dakota Access Pipeline, these companies will say they're creating like thousands of jobs. And then when you look at what they're actually doing, you know, it's a few hundred jobs in construction and a bunch of what they call like indirectly created jobs of like waitresses who are serving, um, you know, coffee to the guys building the pipeline before they go out and do that, you know, and build the pipeline across like native land and things like that. Um, they, that's not to say that, that, you know, that there aren't real like economic stimulus effects around those areas, but they're just, you know, they really hype up the number of jobs they're creating um, and make it like, oh, this is like destroying, um, you know, all of these great livelihoods. And I think it's just simply not true very, very often. 
anyway, that's a bit of a digression. But the point is, um, the I think the the like environmentalism as killing jobs is like really drastically overstated. But I also think that um, given the kind of general precarity of um, work and people's, um, you know, the attack on unions and all the things that have lessened the power of workers in this country, um, I, I, I do understand that anxiety. And so I think I've kind of gone back and forth and felt like we need to like move away from the jobs only framework and then like practically or pragmatically feel like, well, you know, if um, if this is like a if this is like a winning strategy in terms of thinking about like people being like okay like this is this is like more reassuring that's um, I can understand that I think the question of like what kinds of jobs is really important though um, and this is where I think actually again you have to go back to the Biden climate program um, like I think we could again have a lot of like green jobs that are like um, you know you are doing. Um, we'll take the CCC, for example, right? Like the Civilian Conservation Corps of the um, the New Deal, which Biden has updated for the client to be the Climate Conservation Corps. Um, and that, you know, the CCC itself was like a very like um, definitely very gendered kind of work. It was like get these young men out there like into the wilderness um, and like build their character. And it didn't pay super well. And so labor leaders were pissed about it. Um, and it was temporary, but it also put a ton of people to work. Um, it has, you know, like if you go to any park in the U.S., it's like, oh, everything here was built by the CCC 100 years ago because we haven't done anything since. Um, and, you know, in the new climate bill, there's like $10 billion for a new um, climate conservation corps um, or civilian climate corps. I can't remember what the CCC exactly is. Anyway. Um, and it's $10 billion, which is decent, but it's not nearly on the scale of like the old CCC. Um, it would uh, employ like 150 to 200,000 workers, um, whereas like the original CCC was like 500,000 at its peak. Um, and, you know, the um, so like on the one hand, there's a scale thing, but it's also like, well, actually, like there's some kinds of work that I think we could use like that are like how to make you know, we obviously need to do a lot to, I think, change um, the built environments, the sort of shape of um, daily life in this country that, like, help, um, you know, I mean, not just the kinds of, like, big building, like, train lines and things like that, but, like, how to make um, urban areas more, um, you know, heat resilient um, for, like, when we have really <laughs> high temperatures because of climate change, like, how can, um, how can, cities not be these like heat islands that are just baking um, and making life really unpleasant? How can we, um, you know, be making, um, you know, uh, building some kinds of like city green infrastructure that are about like um, having uh, like that are that are reducing flood risk? Like there's like a lot of stuff like that that we could and should be doing um, and that I think would be important work to do. It's not <laughs> work that the private sector is going to do, you know, ecological ecosystem restoration um, is not something the private sector is going to do. <laughs> there's not money to be made in it, um, but it's really important. It's stuff that we need. It's stuff that, again, is like infrastructure for people's lives rather than like for um, for like supporting more economic growth or whatever. And so it's like, I think that, you know, the question I always want to think is like, well, actually, what are the kinds of things we need to do? Um, and how can we have people doing the work that we need to do um, and getting paid well for it and, and limiting that work? <laughs> um, and, and in general, trying to do less work. Um, 
but like to, again, treat that as not just a, how can we create the max number of jobs, but like, how can we actually like take a look at what we need to do and, um, try to, try to, um, do those things or, or to, to connect, um, to make that the center of like, when we talk about jobs, 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 or whatever, rather than just trying to like incentivize a private sector to create a bunch of jobs doing probably something bad, <laughs> um, which is unfortunately, I think what too much of the Biden climate plan is, is doing in a kind of continuation of some of the Obama model. Yeah. I mean, jobs are essentially like, you know, they're a means to an end. They're not really, <laughs> they're not really a goal in of themselves really. Um, yeah, but, absolutely. Um, uh, so I, you know, we, um, the reason we're talking, the reason we have all these plans in front of us in part is because we're we're living through a global health crisis right now. And so we would be remiss if we went through this whole conversation and didn't mention it. So as we're dealing with the pandemic, um, there have been various intersections that we've seen between the impact of the pandemic and the impact of climate change, uh, for example, and, you know, the, the way the care sector in many ways has been uh, devastated and also faced um, a lot of increased pressure as a result of um, as a result of the pandemic. Um, are there any lessons that you've picked up or um, anything about the way the pandemic has compounded all these issues? Um, has it affirmed anything in your head about um, what you think uh, would be a, an appropriate or um, necessary way to address either of these crises, either, you know, in, in climate or in, in the care sector? Yeah, I I think I would just say it's re- mostly reinforced um, for me how how much they go together in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I think the pandemic is, um, I mean, it, it has been this very extraordinary event, but I also think it's the kind of thing that is, um, I think it is a, a sign of what's to come in many ways. Um, the... I think we're in, we're, we're, we're in for more kinds of, um, both emergent diseases sort of changing, um, both from sort of like, you know, I mean, the COVID came out of like changing urbanization patterns and new, like, you know, human wildlife interactions and things like that. Um, I think we're going to see as, as the climate changes, um, you know, uh, non-human organisms moving in different patterns like occupying different regions than they had before like there's going to be these kinds of i think emergent um kinds of diseases coming out of these changing like wildlife and um and ecological patterns um and that is you know things like more disease i think are part of or or different patterns of disease at least i don't know you know if more is the most useful framework um, but are, I think, something we should expect as part of the climate crisis, um, in addition to all of the other kinds of, like, um, disasters and things that are that are also, like, health effects of the climate crisis, um, the ongoing, um, you know, the, the very longstanding and ongoing crisis of um, pollution and environmental racism. Um, but that, like, care is a really crucial piece of how we respond to and are prepared for the changes that climate um, is bringing and that um, caring for um, that, that means I think on the one hand um, needing to have um, to be prepared for those kinds of things, but also, you know, it does, as you suggest, really highlight how much we don't (laughs) value that kind of work, um, how much we, um, you know, pay at lift service, but don't actually um, uh, 
live up to that lip service of like the essential worker and so on in any way. Um, and how, you know, I think really distorted and perverse our, our priorities are around what kinds of work we're um, supporting and doing. Um, and so, you know, I, I really think it just kind of reinforces that um, and also reinforces the importance of, of doing more, you know, like ecological care work of trying to, um, uh, to, to take better care of um, our planet and the various ecosystems that um, keep, you know, life as we know it <laughs> um, functioning, uh, that keep that like actually are really important in human health because we all live. Um, you know, we live in ecosystems, whether or not we think about it that way. And if they're breaking down, like that has effects on on human health. And in many ways, you know, as I suggested from like disease to pollution, um, to various kinds of disasters. And so, um, you know, I think we really have to just never <laughs> forget that they're that they're interrelated and, um, and are going to that that's going to become, I think, more and more clear. You have written um, in the past about universal basic income and this discussion of the need to reevaluate care work has sort of reminded me of this other debate about, um, you know, what would it mean to live in a truly sort of life sustaining economy um, in which maybe uh, labor is not the center of everything. Right. So um, can you, can you talk about um, UBI and, and maybe how that debate has evolved maybe since you last wrote on it, um, since you did have, have it come up in the presidential election a couple of times, um, and maybe how it fits into this discussion we're having about, um, you know, child care work and home care work and, um, and why those are so, such degraded uh, jobs these days. And don't forget Andrew Yang might be mayor of New York soon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Doom. Anyway. Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, my, when I first heard about basic income, you know, I, I wrote about how I thought basic income could be really like a, a different answer than the green job to the kinds of, the kind of like job environment problem, um, or like the, the kind of, um, that, that UBI could help us get away from jobs as the only framing of, climate and environmental issues or really of <laughs> policy in general, um, that if we detach work um, from income, the income that everyone needs to live in a market-dependent capitalist society, um, we could maybe think more about what we actually need to do um, in terms of like what kinds of work we sort of think are socially desirable um, and necessary um, on the one hand, and then like what we as individuals want to spend our time doing. Um, and I still very strongly believe that we have to do both of those things, like actually make decisions um, about work that are, um, you know, that are about what we actually think we need and um, should be doing and uh, both collectively and individually um, that we should be able to do things with our lives that are not framed um, in the language or um, either the language of work or that are organized like work in terms of, you know, they're being disciplined and you have a boss and um, you have a set of like things that you're supposed to be delivering and so on. So um, so I really, I really think both of those are really important for, um, how we can, you know, have a, um, both like good lives in general. I think they're a really important piece of, um, addressing climate change and other environmental issues. And, um, again, like getting past the, the green jobs is the only answer. 
Um, at the same time, I've become more worried <laughs> about um, UBI as like the um, the demand politically rather than like as an idea. I think just because it's become so dominated by um, the kind of, I guess like kind of techno libertarian <laughs> vision. The Andrew Yangs of the world. Yeah, the Andrew Yangs of the world. And like Andrew Yangs, um, I mean, actually, it's actually a really great example because I think his recent, you know, he just came out with this like, He's, he's been talking about, obviously, UBI for a long time and kind of got famous in the presidential race by talking about UBI. And there were times when I was like, yeah, this is cool. Like, there's, you know, some of the things he's saying I agree with, and I'm glad he's, like, sort of putting this question on the table. But his actual vision is pretty, um, not is not one I agree with at all. And his, you know, um, that was made clear by his recent sort of proposal for New York, where instead of, like, a kind of... Um, a basic income that would be um, adequate in the language of the welfare rights movement and back in, um, you know, when there were demands for a guaranteed minimum income um, in the early 70s, um, the uh, National Welfare Rights Organization demanded an adequate guaranteed income. Um, and I think the Yang proposal is, is really not adequate. It's like $2,000 a year for like um, not universal for like a subset of, I'm not sure what the, the cutoff is, but of like low income people and it would pay for that by cutting other social programs. And that's like very classic, <laughs> like, you know, centrist, right? Like techno libertarian um, UBI is like you cut a bunch of like public services and goods um, you give people a lump of cash and you're like, good luck, <laughs> like, you know, buy the things you need. Um, and so I, you know, I really, that's not going to cut it, right? Like $2,000 a year more in New York when you're cutting other social programs, like that's not, um, that's not really like the vision of how do we <laughs> get away from like a completely work oriented society. So, um, so I think I become more concerned about I guess, like the politics of um, UBI um, and particularly because I think people often treat it as like a, a kind of like silver bullet um, solution, like um, uh, this, um, the journalist Rucker Bregman had this book about UBI a few years back that was like very like UBI will solve every problem. Like it will make us healthier and happier and like, you know, all of these things. And I think some of, you know, from the like limited, um, studies that have been done on basic income, like it does seem to have positive effects, but I don't think we can treat it as a sort of like standalone policy silver bullet idea. Um, it really has to be part of this broader social vision of like, what do we want <laughs> our society to look like? What kinds of work, um, you know, what is the place of work in that society? Um, and how are we providing for people's lives and livelihoods um, and all of that? And that goes really beyond like the kind of just here's a lump of cash idea. So, so I've gotten, yeah, so I've kind of become, and this is actually part of why I think I've moved more towards like, <laughs> um, despite like feeling frustrated with a lot of the jobs, jobs, jobs rhetoric, um, towards like, okay, well we need to, you know, the right now, um, the jobs model, um, seems to be more part of that vision than UBI. Um, in terms of like broader political formations and projects. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> pragmatically, let's go with this for now. Um, Cause I do think that these ideas always have to be like within the context of um, the broader kind of like political project that they're part of. 
Yeah, I thank you for bringing up the welfare rights movement in this context, because we should always talk about the welfare rights movement, yes. um, always and forever and forever. Um, that is the thing. So I wanted to wrap up by changing tax a little bit, although maybe not that much. Um, you also have written a really wonderful piece a little while back about organizing as a graduate student worker. And right now there's a whole lot going on among graduate student workers, a strike at NYU, a recent strike at Columbia. Um, and so I wanted to ask you to close by um, giving some thoughts on that ongoing struggle for recognizing grad students' labor as work and maybe how it relates to this, the devaluing of certain work that we've been talking about this whole time. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about grad organizing and grad unions. I um, really, um, it's really cool to see uh, to see grad students going on strike um, at MIU recently at Columbia, um, and I think that those are um, really interesting in a couple of ways. I mean, both as you say, as like a kind of model of the the sort of changing. Um, they illustrate so well the kind of changing like. Um, valence of work, I guess, and that um, grad students have been um, the the kind of status of grad students has gone back and forth um, very explicitly in terms of whether they're students or employees, and that's been like waged on the one hand at the level of um, uh, federal labor law and whether they're classified as employees. Uh, under the National Labor Relations Act. And that's been a big fight with like the NLRB back and forth with different presidential administrations. So on the one hand, it's kind of, it seems like this like almost like technocratic <laughs> decision making, like, are you a worker or not? Um, but it's not actually, because it's, it's um, grad workers themselves have like consistently said, we are workers, have really changed, um, have both, I think, driven um, those those policy decisions that are being made at the NLRB level by saying like, we're workers, <laughs> you need to recognize this work, we're going to bring petitions, we're going to like continue to, um, uh, uh, you know, fight for our, um, our rights as workers. And as union, whether or not the um, federal government recognizes us or not. Um, and that has really changed the conversation about academic labor in general. Like there, it really has been amazing to me to see the, the change, even since I started organizing, you know, 10 years ago when I started grad school. Um, I think the question of are we really workers, even amongst grad students, was much more um, seemed much more um prevalent in a way like i think that i think that um grad unions and grad worker organizers have have really answered that question with a resounding yes and it's very um cool to see how that um kind of political work and organizing can um can have i think both effects on the workplace but also can change social perceptions um and then that has like effects on um, when you win a contract that pays you more, that like changes the material conditions for people who are doing that work. So um, it's it's really exciting. Um, I also think that grad workers are um, like a part of this, this sort of broader category of um, green jobs that I um, mentioned earlier um, and are, you know, in the same way that I think um, people who are teachers are part of like the low carbon good life work. Um, I think that um, people who are teaching and working in higher ed are sort of um, in a similar position. I think that that, um, that improving that kind of work is important for, for kind of making it possible to, um, to 
to do that work and and like have a decent life um, for improving the the working conditions um, and students learning conditions as the the slogan goes um, and for um, you know having again like a, a kind of life that's um, organized around you know that has work included in it, teaching obviously is work but that that we're, where we're thinking about like what makes for a good life and I you know maybe I'm biased because I am an academic and an academic worker but I do think that things like um teaching and learning and um and exploring you know ideas and intellectual interests are like a really important part of a good life that um does not require a ton of resources a ton of like you know you don't have to like you have to have some like green energy yes but it's not like um a super like consumption intensive um, kind of life um, inherently. And so I think that like, how can we envision a world where there's more of that? And I think grad grad unions are, are doing some of that work. And really it's amazing. You know, I think that most of, in terms of like re-envisioning what the academy could look like instead of like the neoliberal academy um, towards a more, um, you know, open, inclusive, like, you know, connected to communities in which these very wealthy, often universities exist. Um, like, uh, that's more con- where, where academic inquiry is really driven more by like people's um, interests and, and passions and so on. Like, I think that a lot of the energy for imagining that is coming out of the grad um, worker movement. And it's really, um, it is, I think, still really inspiring to me. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Elizabeth Estoni, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. Where we talk about the pieces that we've read and wish we had written but did not. My pick for ARG is The Story Behind Your Salad, Farm Workers, COVID-19, and a Dangerous Commute by Esther Honig in The Nation. She tells the story of farm workers at the U.S. border and what exactly they go through each day just to get to work. Following a group of men from one side of the border to another, an hours-long trek from a border checkpoint to the farms of Yuma, Arizona, Honig's reporting elucidates both the social complexity and the eerie banality of border crossing in the midst of harsh immigration restrictions, globalization, and COVID-19. One of the first things we realize is that pandemic health precautions are not really a priority at the border, and we soon realize why. COVID-19 has had a significant impact on agricultural workers. Many have died. We may never know how many exactly. But it's just one of many threats that they have to deal with day to day. Even getting to work is a pretty perilous journey. They travel hours to harvest tens of thousands of heads of lettuce over the course of a workday under grueling conditions. The workers are part of a sprawling workforce of agricultural laborers who are hired under the H-2A visa program. They're so-called guest workers for the agricultural sector. Even at the height of Trump's crackdown on immigration, even when Trump had effectively sealed off the southern border to asylum seekers and made them languish in squalid conditions in Mexico, Trump never turned off the spigot for this critical labor supply on the nation's farms. Even during the pandemic, when Trump tried to shutter most channels for legal migration, the powerful agribusiness lobby pushed to keep borders open for this surplus army of labor. Guest worker programs have been going on for generations. Most famously, the Bracero program became a major part of the post-war agricultural system and subjected Mexican farm workers to incredibly brutal treatment and discrimination. Although today the H-2A visa allows agricultural laborers to avoid deportation, they are typically stuck with one employer, and that boss has enormous power to exploit, intimidate, 
and violate the rights of workers because their legal status depends on holding on to that job. In the case of the workers' Honig profiles, they are somewhat fortunate in that they are close enough to the border to be able to return home each day. Others must reside on work camps on the farms that they serve. But for the commuters, the privilege of going home every night means that every morning, they drag themselves through the process of lining up and funneling through an incredibly congested crossing point where they are screened by Border Patrol agents. This is perhaps the closest thing to that political canard so often used by right-wingers. They often tell immigrants to get in line and come in the right way. In reality, there is no such line. But this line at the border is allowed only for people who cannot stay. It's a cue that represents the never-ending search for a decent livelihood and the promise of prosperity that's always just out of reach on the other side of the divide between these two nations. COVID has made this divide starker and even more dangerous. Honig writes, This past year, the pandemic turned an already difficult commute into a hazardous and potentially deadly endeavor. The line for the port of entry is effectively a mass gathering of essential workers with zero enforcement of local health guidelines. Mask use is spotty. People crowd together to prevent anyone from cutting in front of them, and no one is taking anyone's temperature, unquote. Although the risks of infection are everywhere in this sector, this legal form of labor trafficking remains largely unregulated on issues of public health, as well as issues of labor rights and occupational safety. A study by UC Berkeley researchers found that in the Salinas Valley, farm workers were infected at twice the rate of the state population of California. Living in overcrowded quarters, working shoulder to shoulder and sharing meals, these workers simply don't have the luxury of keeping six feet apart all the time. And they do all this so that American consumers, many of them sheltering at home and telecommuting, can get their fresh salad greens at the supermarket each day. These are the essential workers that don't get a standing ovation. They are America's most unwelcome guests. There is legislation pending in Congress that would give these workers a pathway to citizenship, but it's likely that at least for this growing season, the only pathway farm workers can get on is the crush of bodies that the Border Patrol vets each morning for the people who are only needed for their labor and nothing else. It's interesting to see how this system has little changed since the Bracero days. Back then, as now, the system began as a temporary measure to deal with a supposed labor shortage. It was determined that not enough Americans were available to work in the fields, and this in turn became a pretext for turning a temporary stopgap measure to fill a labor shortage into a permanent, entrenched part of the economy. And as consumers, we're all deeply embedded in a food system built on this hyper-exploited labor. Toward the end, we hear from the older farm workers in their 60s and 70s. They've been working since well before the youngest co-workers were born, perhaps. Honig writes, Quote, these older farm workers face a significantly higher risk from the coronavirus, yet they continue going to the fields out of economic necessity. Most everyone knows at least one person who has died from COVID-19. As 66-year-old Victor Manuel Hernandez told me, it's not strange anymore when they tell you what's-his-name is dead. It's normal, unquote. We're all talking about what the new normal will be in the post-COVID era. But for farm workers, what's normal today isn't all that different from the status quo except it's become more deadly, more dangerous, and more desperate. As the economy embarks on a so-called recovery, we don't know what types of lessons we might learn from all the trauma that the pandemic has inflicted on our personal lives at home and at work. Hopefully, all of the appreciation for the essential workers of the country will prompt a fresh look at the labor conditions that farm workers toiled under both before and during the pandemic. But in the fields, it's still about day-to-day -day survival. It seems no one's getting their hopes up for any long overdue justice from Washington. And every season, the cycle begins again, even in the midst of a global pandemic that was supposed to change everything. 
And we see that for the poorest workers, nothing much has really changed except that this global public health crisis has underscored how their lives are devalued every day. So maybe the one thing that will change is that by the time the next growing season rolls around, many of them won't be coming back. So, there was almost a strike at the Kentucky Derby last week. And unsurprisingly, friend of the show Travis Waldron, Louisville native and sports labor writer extraordinaire, has the piece to read on it at the HuffPost. It's titled, Potential Work Stoppage Looms Over Saturday's Kentucky Derby. He writes, quote, A group of unionized workers at Churchill Downs, the Louisville-Kentucky racetrack that hosts the event, says the company that owns the track and others across the country has refused to meet their demands for modest raises and increases to pension benefits. Churchill Downs' 13-member team of ballots, the workers who prepare horses and jockeys for each race, and yes, according to Travis, that is how you pronounce it, have been working without a contract since last fall and have yet to reach a new agreement with the billion-dollar company that owns the race course, end quote. The ballots, perhaps unsurprisingly, weren't thrilled about the prospect of a strike. The S word is the last thing I want, Ron Shelton, a Churchill Downs ballot, told Travis. Just pick up the phone and call us. We're willing to get in there and negotiate and reach across the table if they're willing to do the same. And I believe we can settle this thing, end quote. But nevertheless, as Travis writes, quote, the Service Employees International Union on Wednesday authorized a potential strike at the racetrack. And SEIU Local 541, the racetrack employees union that includes the ballots, is considering the next steps it wants to take. The Greater Louisville Central Labor Council, a coalition of 50 unions that represent about 50,000 workers in the city, also met Wednesday and decided it would back a strike if the dispute reached that point. Louisville's a union town and the Kentucky Derby is union made, said Tim Morris, the Labor Council's executive director. Morris noted that paramutual clerks at Churchill Downs, the people who take bets on each race, are also organized, as are the workers who make the garland of roses that goes to the derby winner each year. So when one of our folks is attacked, then we want to support them however we can, he said, end quote. The increase that the workers are asking for is pretty small, actually. They're asking for an increase of their daily rate from $109 to $130 per day by the end of a three-year contract, plus a small increase to pension contributions. The union estimates that the raises and pension increases it has requested would cost around $27,000 per year. As Travis notes, this is a small ask from a company that earned more than $1 billion in revenue last year. But Churchill countered with $120 a day by the third year and no pension adjustment. It all came down to the wire, as they say, and the workers did decide to work the Derby. The union statement said, quote, with the world's eyes on the Kentucky Derby, we want to thank everyone for their support in the fight for livable wages, dignity and respect for the valets at Churchill Downs. The ballots have made the incredibly tough and selfless decision to put this event and the entire community above themselves, and the leadership of SEIU Local 541 respects that decision. The ballots will continue to work the Kentucky Derby with the same commitment, passion, and dedication that they always have, and this union will continue to support them in their pursuit of a fair and just contract. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on journalists and nurses strikes, care and green jobs, labor policy, and of course, work in the age of COVID-19. 
Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us. And most importantly, as always, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories. We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings help us find new listeners. We've been doing this for quite a while, and we always want to reach more people. Special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either over at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. We understand and we keep this podcast unpaywalled because we know that it's rough out there right now and a lot of you don't have the money to kick in. But if you do, this helps us support worker-focused journalism. As I noted earlier in the show, it is very hard to earn a living wage doing what we do, and we really, really appreciate you. We also have some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits for the highest tier if you donate over the Patreon. And you can always find out more about us on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of working under COVID or just working in general, you can as always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're a nurse or a wind turbine installer, a teacher, a farm worker, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.